shame in the right doses and at the right level or, or distance can actually be a huge turn on. Getting Discomfortable with Sex Addiction First of all, I want to talk about the word addiction and shame. It's very possible for the word addiction itself or or the concept of being an addict to be shaming because addiction or being an addict doesn't seem to leave a lot of wiggle room for you to change and get better. So it can very much trap you in a fixed mindset. I'm an addict, or I have an addiction. It's permanent, and I will never be better, or I will never be good again. I'm bad, I'm worse, I'm lesser than all the other people who don't have an addiction or who are not addicts. It really comes down to that all-important differentiation between shame and guilt. Shame being this universal feeling that I am a bad thing, whereas guilt being this very specific sense of I did a bad thing. So when it comes to addiction, it's all about how you contextualize that word. If you hear addiction and you feel trapped forever in this addiction, and it makes you feel worse and lesser than everyone else, then you're in shame. But for me, addiction has a different connotation. And and this is literally just for me, personally. When I think about something being addictive, it actually makes me feel less shame because I feel less responsible for my actions. Like a sugar addiction, I know that I have this conditioning now where after every meal, my body is like expecting sugar. And I don't interpret that as me being inherently addicted to sugar or inherently bad or flawed or different or lesser. I look at it more as a habituation. It's like my body has become habituated to this scenario. And so it gives me a little space to say like, well, this is a difficult thing. No wonder I'm eating a lot of sugar. My body is now craving it. But at the same time, I still see the opportunity to change. I I see that this addiction or this pattern can be broken, though it won't be easy. But I know some people who, when they have been labeled addicted, have felt extremely boxed in. They felt like there's something deeply wrong with them. And I've met other people, like my friend Katie. We did an episode a couple years ago on sobriety, and she considers herself an alcoholic. And, and she actually considers it a permanent thing. She is forever and always an alcoholic, and she can never have alcohol because of it. But for her, it's clear that she finds a lot of liberation in that. So once again, it kind of has to do with what the word means to you personally. For Katie, and I'm interpreting here, it seemed in the interview like understanding or believing that she was an alcoholic actually gave her room to forgive herself because it made her realize, oh, I didn't choose to be this way. I didn't make a a terrible decision. My body demanded something. And when I was in a position of having had one beer, I had no control over my actions. 
So for Katie, she's able to find space away from shame by seeing an addiction as something, again, beyond her control. And even if it is something permanent about her, she doesn't see it as a flaw, per se. She just sees it as a challenge. So the exact words that you use don't necessarily matter. It's all about how you look at your situation and whether you find any space to change or any space to accept yourself or any space to work with the issue. And if not, if you see this this label as sort of miring you in a really unpleasant way, in an identity that you don't want, then you might be able to find another word that shifts it more into guilt. So for me, the idea of being labeled a sex addict does seem really shaming and limiting. However, the concept of sex being addictive or of having a sex addiction seems totally understandable and totally guilt-based. A sex addiction to me or the addictive nature of sex is not about a flaw in my personality. It's a quirk in human psychology and physiology that makes sex something that's really powerful and needs to be dealt with carefully. Sex meets a whole host of human needs. Sex can meet our needs for, well, of course, sex and pleasure. It can meet our needs for intimacy. It can meet our needs for touch. It can meet our needs for connection. It can meet needs for belonging. It can meet needs for community. It can meet needs for validation. It can meet needs for acceptance. It can meet needs for feeling desired. It can meet all kinds of different needs which I think is what makes it so powerful and so addictive at times. It can make us feel like we are moving in a direction that is really pleasurable and healthy. And in many cases, it is. But if you are using the pleasure and need meeting or apparent need meeting of sex to block or numb or distract away from some unpleasant emotions that you actually just need to face and feel, that's when you're in the territory of numbing or of using sex in an addictive way. I guess that would count as what they call a process addiction. A process addiction isn't based on a chemical It's about an action which in some way becomes habituated, probably because it feels good or you think it's going to feel good. So you keep doing it. Classic examples of a process addiction are video games or gambling or even exercise can become a process addiction if taken too far. And again, where you draw that line is kind of subjective and up to you. I love going to the gym. I go three times a week, it makes me feel great, it releases all these chemicals in my body, and it makes me feel healthy. So that I consider fine and healthy and not really an addiction per se, even though it is somewhat driven by wanting to look attractive and find a boyfriend, etc. So I can I can see how exercise could become addictive, but I don't think I've ever gotten into a space where I was using exercise in an addictive or numbing way. 
And of course, sex also releases all of these happy chemicals. So you could argue that there is a chemical addiction component to it if we get habituated to having these chemicals in our system constantly, for example, then we might start to crave sex in a way that is distracting from our other goals, needs, and desires. I think part of the problem with using sex in this way of numbing or trying to feel good all the time is that some of the needs we think sex is meeting are very temporary. Like, the degree to which it feels like sex is meeting your need for belonging or community or acceptance or validation even is very short-lived. Yes, you feel like you're being validated and accepted and that you belong and that you're connected and that maybe there's a bit of a community there as it's happening. But as soon as it's over your need for belonging and community is gone, and that person leaves. And especially if you're getting involved in a lot of casual sex, it's possible that you will, in fact, never see them again. And then actually you realize that your, your, your sense of belonging and community was an illusion. And so you end up feeling bad again. You end up feeling unpleasant because the needs you thought you were meeting weren't actually met or, or were only met in a brief and illusory way. So then you're like, oh, well, I need to go out and have sex again. That's what makes it kind of a process addiction, is that when the high of that brief pleasure wears off, you immediately think, oh, I need to do it again. Instead of seeing that it doesn't actually meet the needs that you're trying to meet, you start to think of it as this temporary solution that needs to just be done over and over and over again. But really, there are much more effective ways to meet your need for belonging and community, for example, than sex, you know, like friendship and helping people and being part of a large group and things like that. There's so many different strategies to meet those needs. And I think sex is getting conflated for a lot of people with these other social needs that can be met in other ways. And I think this is especially true, as I alluded to in the last episode, in the gay male community. There is a lot of people who think that what they want is sex, but really, they're actually looking for something more along the lines of connection, belonging, and community, which are much more permanent needs. To really meet them, you have to create something a lot more stable and consistent and long-lasting than just a brief sexual encounter, or even a series of brief sexual encounters. Because if you have to constantly have sex to meet those needs, you're going to have to have so much sex that it naturally impacts all of the other areas of your life. Belonging is kind of this pervasive feeling, and it's the same with community. It's this sense that you're part of something larger that, that exists beyond you at all times. And so if you're, if you're getting that need met through a process, through an action like sex, it is an ineffective way to get that all-pervasive feeling of belonging. It's just a bad strategy. So once again, I don't want to be sex negative. There's nothing wrong with meeting a bunch of needs through sex. But it's about becoming really clear and self-aware about, wait, which needs am I actually trying to meet here? 
a good way to kind of figure this out is to look at whatever your pattern with sex is and then track your mood and see if you can tell when you initiate something sexual, what mood you were in when you started it. Like if you are having sex by going on an app, look at the moments where you feel compelled to open the app. Is it coming from a moment of boredom? Is it coming from a moment of sadness or stress or panic or grief? If it's constantly coming out of an unpleasant state, then it's very likely that you are using sex as a numbing agent and not just sort of basking in the spontaneous joy of wanting to have sex sometimes, which of course we all do. As I've said many, many, many times before, unpleasant emotions are a message to you. And the only way you can get that message is by allowing yourself to actually feel them. Think of an emotion as a sentence. If you keep stopping someone in the middle of a sentence, they're going to keep trying to tell you. They're going to say over and over again this sentence until you let them finish. And an emotion is pretty much the same thing. Feeling it is allowing it to give the full message. And if you stop it, if you numb it, if you get into all these process addictions to avoid it, then that message keeps coming, sometimes getting even louder or turning into trauma because it's trying to get your attention to communicate something that your body thinks is important. So actually the best way to let a feeling go, to pass, to to get over it, is just to feel it so that your body knows that you got the message. It connects directly to the title of this podcast, Discomfortable. It's about getting comfortable with discomfort and realizing that feeling unpleasant isn't a bad thing in and of itself. It is a signal that something might be happening in your life that isn't working as well as it could. Some need is not being met, and your body just wants you to know that. Something's not quite right here. Feel this emotion, and then try to figure out what it is. And if you're constantly not feeling that emotion, and subsequently not figuring out what that need is that isn't met, what the problem is, and instead going off and doing something that gives you a hit of pleasure then you are probably in a pattern of habituated numbing or addiction, whatever you want to call it. I'm told that the concept of addiction is actually much more complex, and I'm not an expert in it, but I want to just suggest that this is a very common pattern that we fall into based around the misunderstanding that unpleasant emotions are somehow bad and should be avoided, or the illusion that just because something feels good, it's okay to do it all the time. I really started to understand this when one of my best friends was dying of cancer. And I found that my desire to have sex seemed to be through the roof. I was constantly thinking about sex and constantly trying to have it. However, ironically, but not surprisingly, every time I actually did get in a position to have sex in that period, I couldn't get an erection. It was like my body recognized that I was trying to avoid something and was like, no, I'm not on board with this. You need to face the fear and grief that is happening here. 
it got to the point where if I ever found myself pulling out my phone and clicking on a dating app, I would immediately stop and say, oh, what unpleasantness am I trying to avoid? Like, almost certainly something triggered that, and I can work backwards and be like, oh, yeah, I suddenly thought about my friend, or I suddenly thought about mortality, or I was just feeling bored and I didn't know what to do with myself, or I was feeling lonely or worthless. There was always some kind of negative impetus that was pushing me towards this pattern of opening this app and trying to meet someone to distract me. And you know what? Sometimes distraction is great. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have sex, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't even completely distract yourself sometimes. It can be a really powerful way to get yourself out of your threat response, for example, which can be not very useful sometimes, to just distract yourself for half an hour until your brain settles down into its normal functioning. That's that's great. Or, you know, sometimes we've had a long day or we're stressed and we recognize that we've done everything we can in that moment and we're totally justified to indulge in some distraction. But I think it's a lot healthier and has a lot more utility when you can acknowledge to yourself, I am distracting myself. I am allowing myself, I am consciously deciding to move into some kind of behavior in order to give myself this little treat (laughs) of distraction. It's when I allowed it to be a completely unconscious, habituated pattern that it really got problematic. When you're in that mindset, you're basically looking for your process addiction everywhere all the time. You go out for dinner with your friends, but the whole time you have a wandering eye to see if there's any cute guys around who you might be able to pick up. Or you're only half invested in a conversation with your friend because you know that you have all these other conversations happening on your phone on various apps. So your brain gets sort of fragmented at at any given time. You're only kind of half present, and part of you is always somewhere else, looking, seeking, trying to get that validation, fulfillment, excitement, whatever it is that's distracting you. You're trying to get that fulfilled in every moment, and, and it can start to impact your work. It can start to impact your relationships. It can start to impact your desire and ability to even have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, because they might inhibit you from the ability to have sex with whoever, wherever, whenever, and the sheer variety that is available to you out there in the world of people who can meet your needs for validation. And that's that's the interesting and very important thing to remember about meeting the need for validation and attraction and acceptance with sex is that once you have been validated and accepted and deemed attractive by one person, there's diminishing returns. It stops kind of meeting that need in the same way. So it inherently asks you to keep looking for other people. You're constantly on the lookout for someone new to validate you. It's like it's cumulative and it's a competition and whoever can get the most validation from the most amount of people wins. Or anyway, that's how it feels. But in practice, of course, it doesn't work. It's actually just a series of temporary pleasant feelings 
feelings that don't really meet your inner needs for deep validation or acceptance or belonging or connection in a way that you could with another type of strategy, like friendship or a relationship or, you know, being part of a community for real, like actually showing up and knowing people and being around and helping others and contributing, all that stuff. And of course, behind the scenes, one of the biggest driving factors for this kind of addictive sexual behavior is shame. Not only is shame a deeply pervasive and unpleasant feeling, but it connects directly to these ideas of, do I belong? Am I accepted? Am I respected and validated and wanted and attractive? And sex, because it meets so many social needs associated with the opposite of shame, it, is, it, it seems like a really good strategy, a really powerful way to completely destroy shame, to avoid it. But as I've said before, it's just a temporary band-aid against shame, and it doesn't really stop shame from controlling you. And I want to note that all of this behavior is totally normal and makes perfect sense. Especially if you are gay, you grew up with a culture telling you that you shouldn't have sex, that you shouldn't feel these desires. It was a deep shaming around one of the most powerful and fundamental drives in your life, sex. So once you finally accept your sexuality and decide that you're allowed to explore it and enjoy it, it makes sense that you're going to want to lean into it and make up for lost time and kind of like give a big fuck you to the society and the people that told you that it was bad and that you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So I can feel this real resistance to ever hear anything critical about sex. It's like, don't you dare tell me I can't have sex or I shouldn't have sex or this kind of sex is bad. I have heard that my whole life and I'm not going to believe it anymore. That totally makes sense and I completely resonate with that. But you can always sort of go too far in the wrong direction. And I think that it's important to find the right balance where you are using sex in a skillful way and not in a reactionary way. There's this really interesting reaction to shame that I've talked about a bit before, and it's basically akin to denial. And I think that the most common reaction to shame is denial. Most people don't even realize when they're feeling shame because they deny it so deeply. And this actually makes sense. If, if you get into like the technical side of shame, it's seen as an emotional attenuator. So the word, I didn't know what the word attenuator meant when I heard it. It's basically the opposite of the word amplifier. An amplifier, you know, it amplifies things. It it expands them. It, It makes them bigger. And an attenuator, it diminishes things. It makes them smaller. So shame is an emotional attenuator, which means that when you are feeling another emotion and suddenly there's a trigger that says, hey, this emotion might be socially inappropriate right now, shame comes along and it actually has the power to completely inhibit 
the previous emotion that you were feeling. That's why shame is seen as the quote-unquote master emotion, because it has power to control every other emotion. I think shame even has the power to control other drives, like sexual attraction. Shame can say, no, being attracted to this is inappropriate, I am going to inhibit it. Oh, no, showing that amount of excitement in this moment is inappropriate, I am going to diminish it. That's what shame does. But because our culture has so much shame around shame itself, in fact, I don't think it's even our culture, I think built right into shame is this internal message, don't tell anyone about me, because it seems to imply that if you're feeling shame, there must be something you should be ashamed of. So shame can actually attenuate itself. You, you do some kind of silly thing, you're, you're maybe feeling joy, and then you realize, oh, wow, this is too joyful. So shame comes along and diminishes your joy. But then looking all ashamed is also deemed shameful. So shame comes along again and diminishes itself. That is the moment you get into denial. And shame does such a good job of diminishing itself that often you don't even know that you're feeling shame because shame has inhibited itself so well. Meanwhile, still doing its previous job of inhibiting your supposedly inappropriate joy reaction from before. But connected to the denial is what Lee Larson calls rebellion from shame. Lee Larson is a mediator and nonviolent communicator who I interviewed a few episodes back, and she talks about the process by which you feel shame, but you feel so much shame about feeling shame that you actually specifically do the action that you were ashamed of in order to prove to yourself and others that you weren't ashamed of it at all. In my mind, there's actually a bit of an equation that you can work out. If you feel more shame about feeling shame than you did about the action that prompted the shame, then you will very likely go into rebellion because it looks worse for it to be obvious that you felt shame than it does to just go and do the initial thing that made you feel shame, if that makes any sense. It's like, which is the lesser of the two evils? If feeling shame is the greater evil, you will go into rebellion in order to prove to everyone that you definitely were not feeling shame. And I think with gay men, and anyone who comes from a sexually repressed culture, which is basically everyone, there can be this rebellion reaction wherein you want to have a ton of sex to prove that you will no longer allow yourself to be controlled by shame. It's more important to do the opposite of the shame than it is to acknowledge that, well, maybe there is a limit to the amount of sex I should be having. Not that there's anything wrong with me having sex, despite what I was told by my culture, but still, you know, there's probably a balance to be had. So rebellion, in an ironic way, controls us just as much as if we just allowed shame to directly tell us what to do. It just happens in an inverse way. Some people are so controlled by shame that whatever shame says is shameful, they never do. Other people are controlled by shame in this inverse rebellious way such that whatever shame tells them not to do, they have to do. So it's, it's really no better, but it probably feels like you have more autonomy and more strength when really you're actually just as controlled by shame, just in the opposite way. 
So it's important to allow yourself to feel shame, to acknowledge when you're in shame, to talk about it openly with other people. That stops you from going into denial or rebellion. It says it's okay to feel shame, which it is. It says that when you feel shame, it doesn't necessarily mean you've done something quote-unquote bad. It just means that you have transgressed against the childhood cultural conditioning that is still active inside of you. Childhood conditioning is an extremely difficult thing to change. I haven't figured out how to do it. So the best way to not be controlled by it is to just feel the shame of it and say, I'm feeling shame about this, but I don't actually agree with the shame. I don't actually agree with the childhood conditioning. So for me, it's like, yes, I still feel shame around all kinds of sexual issues, but I'm not going to let that shame stop me from having sex when I think I should and can and it's healthy and it's fun. And I'm also not going to let that shame push me into rebellion such that I constantly have sex just to prove that I don't want to be controlled by my childhood conditioning anymore. There's one last bit that I want to talk about in terms of sex and shame, and that is that shame, in the right doses and at the right level or or distance, can actually be a huge turn-on. We often hear sex described as dirty or nasty or freaky or kinky. And I think those are all connected to this idea that a little bit of shame is actually really exciting. In fact, if you look at most humor, it is based in shame. Most jokes are about shaming someone or shaming the comedian or shaming the audience or shaming everyone. And we have this built-in, nervous, excited, giddy laughter that happens with a certain level of shame. When there's a bit of distance, especially if it's not our shame or if it's kind of a collective shame that we can all kind of admit to, then it stimulates laughter. Just look at little kids and their obsession with talking about pee and poo and bums and penises. They giggle and giggle because they're playing with the boundary of shame. How close can I get to these things that I'm not supposed to be talking about? And if I can keep it at the right distance and have the right kind of control and relationship around it, it makes me laugh hysterically. That is the power of shame. There's just something exciting about it. And the same is true for sex. Shame can titillate and excite us like, ooh, I'm doing something transgressive and bad. And, and if, I, if I have enough you know, comfort and space around that badness, it can be really fucking hot. Sex itself, for most people, has that titillation. It's like, ooh, I'm not even supposed to be having sex because sex is so taboo in our culture. And that is also what draws us into risky sexual behaviors a lot of the time. Things like cheating or casual sex or anonymous sex or, I don't know, all, all kinds of different kinks can be exciting specifically because of their connection and proximity to shame. So, depending on your childhood conditioning and how much shame you have around sex in general, it 
it kind of creates the level of proximity to shame that will excite you. So if there was tremendous all-encompassing shame around sex, you might be really stimulated and excited and titillated just by holding someone's hand. And if there was less shame around sex, you might get the same level of excitement and titillation from doing something a lot more taboo, like having group sex or being watched or, I don't know, videotaped, like whatever it is that feels more transgressive to you. So it's just, again, really interesting to note that shame is not necessarily a bad thing and shame is not necessarily a complete hindrance to sex. Once you become aware of your relationship to shame and sex, you can actually start to game it so that you know exactly what kind of dance with shame you can do to really excite yourself. And you can then also look at your partner and say, okay, what is their dance with shame and sex? And how can we both get what we need? Because my partner might require a lot more distance from shame than I do. So how can we find a context that satisfies both of us? Maybe they need the safety of something really trusting and monogamous and, you know, like based in marriage so that they feel like they can do this. Whereas for you, you want something more transgressive. So you need to take it a bit further and perhaps include some role play or imagination such that you can take what seems very vanilla to you, like monogamous, boring old marriage sex, and make it seem really exciting and, and transgressive again. So understanding your relationship to shame and your partner's relationship to shame can be a really powerful way to figure out how to meet both of your sexual needs. So it all comes down to not avoiding shame, not avoiding our unpleasant emotions, becoming comfortable with the discomfort of them instead. Because when you can be aware of them and talk about them openly and allow yourself to feel them, you have way more power, you have way more choice, and you have way more ability to have really healthy, satisfying, good sex which is what we all want, (laughs) isn't it?